welcome to the Family Matters Podcast, where we answer the tough questions about divorce and separation, empowering you to make better decisions for yourself and your family. So welcome. Thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 1 of the new Family Matters Show podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Bryant from Bryant McKinnon Lawyers, and I'm here with my partner, Heather McKinnon. Hi, Heather. Hi, Ben. I'm very excited to be kicking off this new podcast. Yeah, as you know, we're passionate about trying to get information out to the community free of charge that's of good quality to get rid of the myths about family law. And we think this format's going to really help us reach a better audience in a better way. For those of you that don't know Heather and myself, we're both accredited family law specialists here at Bryant McKinnon Lawyers in Coffs Harbour. And we see firsthand how difficult and scary separation can be. And that's why we started this show, um, to get some questions answered without getting lawyers involved. And yeah, so to help people navigate what can be a very difficult and complex system in a difficult and complex time. Today, we're going to tackle one of the biggest concerns for many people going through a separation. And that, of course, is the parenting arrangements. What is going to happen with the children? Too often, children are unintended collateral damage during a divorce. And so for this show, we're going to focus on how we can help children cope through separation. And to help us deal with this subject, of course, we're joined with Dr. Ian Nisbet. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ben. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, For those of you that don't know, Dr. Ian Nisbet is a forensic psychologist based in Coffs Harbour, current practising as a private psychologist with the Australian Psychology and Wellness Centre. He works with children teens and parents to assist with relationship and conduct problems. He also works extensively in the court system, providing family reports and forensic psychological reports. He has previously worked as a lecturer at Griffith University and with New South Wales Juvenile Justice. So Ian, this is an incredibly large topic and every family is different, of course, and so are children, different ages, personality, maturity types, the nature of the relationship between the children and the parents are different. But in that context, we're going to ask a few questions anyway in this short program. And we're going to ask um, some pointed questions that um, Heather and I ask frequently in our interview rooms. And again, thank you for being with us today. So Ian, given that every situation is different, what would you say are the three or four most important things for parents to keep in mind if they want to minimise their children's trauma from separation? Look, I think the best outcomes for children in these kind of matters is when the parents are able to somehow amicably arrange the the living arrangements for the children in a way that doesn't involve a lot of hostility and anger directed towards the other party. Uh, children are very sensitive to how their parents feel about well, how their parents feel in general, but also how they feel about the other party as mm. well. And as much as possible, if parents are able to um, shield their children from the conflict, that's what leads to the best outcomes for children. Mm. And Ian, I know you were just talking then about kids are very in tune with parents. Mm. And often when we see people, they think that it's just what they say. But um, I think that 
in your role, you would say kids tune into a lot more subtle things than the words coming out of their parents' mouths. Well, that's yeah, that's right. And not just children. I mean, we yeah. know that about human communication in general, that yeah. in fact, it's it's more the tone of voice, the, the body language and so forth, rather than the actual words that people mm-hmm. use that, that conveys meaning. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, certainly children are very sensitive to their parents' moods uh, yeah. and to whether the parents are happy or sad and, and what things might be troubling them. And we know also that unfortunately, sometimes because their children and their experience of the world is, is very small and short, they make sometimes wrong assumptions about things. And I mm. think we're probably familiar with the scenario where sometimes children will think uh, that the reason mummy and daddy uh, are angry and, and are separating is because they've been naughty or something like that. So sometimes children mis- misattribute things as well. So it's a, it's a very difficult time for children. Mm. And, I, and I guess... Here I'm speaking obviously mainly about younger children, yeah. but you know there's obviously people involved in, in family court matters go from you know, having quite young children right mm. up to teenagers as well. So it's a little bit different depending on the developmental stage children are at. I know um, some of the things that your profession's taught us over the years is with really little ones, they will smell stress. And, um, you know, you can try and be calm, but if, if as a parent you've got really anxious things happening inside, the, mm. the kids will be very attuned to the smell that's on yeah. their skin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and of course that's very difficult not to be anxious and stressed when you're going through this kind of situation mm-hmm. as well. So it's a very difficult time for parents also. Mm. And is there any other practical steps you can think of, Ian, or common practical steps that parents could take in to help them shield their children from the conflict and trauma? I guess I'd probably think more in terms of good things for parents to avoid. Uh, and so as much as possible, avoiding the children being collateral damage or being caught in the middle. So not uh, denigrating the other, the other parent in front of them, but also not asking the other child to like be some sort of go-between in terms of ferrying messages to and fro mm. or even spying on the other parent or, or trying to use the child to get some kind of information about what's going on in, in the other household and mm. things like that. Those things are really best avoided. Um, and, yeah, uh, to trying to avoid, like I, said, like I said, denigrating the other parent but possibly sort of like blaming the parent, the, the other party for things and, and making sure the child knows that the reason that something has happened or hasn't happened is because you know mummy or daddy wouldn't let it happen or something Mm. like that so dragging the children into the conflict is not in anyone's best interest and particularly not the children's what happens then when little ones take on those responsibilities and feel that they're somehow going to control outcomes what as a psychologist can you predict about what will happen to little ones that become over-involved? Well, obviously, it greatly adds to, the, to their stress, uh, makes them anxious. You know, it can lead to a whole lot of other kind of outcomes in terms of them not doing so well at school or not being able to, to sleep can lead to somatic kind of um, problems as well. Mm. So, yeah, overstressed children are likely to, to suffer a number of both like general physical health but also mental health um, poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find with um, older children, especially, Ian, parents sometimes forget um, how children, their children can receive information. Sometimes people think, you know, it's because they're on the telephone and they can hear the other parent or conflict or changeovers. But sometimes it can be something like Facebook. Like Mm -hmm. Facebook is a great opportunity for us to communicate with our viewers live right now, Mm -hmm. but it can also be cause some serious damage. Absolutely, I know parents, especially with younger children, their primary means of communication is Facebook. And they can actually see their friends with their parents or their friends of friends and they can see their posts. So I'm finding that's a big problem that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Facebook, like you say, I mean, it's, it's a tool. You know, basically, we're using it as a tool today. Um, but like most tools, like you know, a very sharp knife, very sharp knives mm. are very useful tools in some situations and also very dangerous in the mm. wrong hands as well. So absolutely need to be careful about that. And Ian, one of the things I know parents agonise about is how to break the news of their separation to their children. Does it make a big difference how this is done? And do you have specific recommendations how to best do this? It depends very much on the developmental stage of the child. And so, I mean, particularly with with teenagers, then Mm -hmm. chances are that it will come as no surprise to the teenagers if parents are going to separate because they can generally kind of see what's happening and and pick up the vibe and know what's what's going on. Um, For younger children, I think the most important thing is for the the child to know, like if we're talking primary age or below, for the children to know that they're not to blame, it's not because mm. they've done something wrong or they weren't good enough or they weren't well behaved enough or whatever, but that it's just that sometimes mums and dads don't get along and that um, you know that they're still going to they still love the child very much, that as much as possible things are going to continue as normal, but they'll be doing it probably from some separate houses in the future. So they won't necessarily be living together. But I guess it's important for the child to know that what has been their world up until now can actually continue and that they can still have a, a secure relationship with both parties, like the mum and the dad, mm-hmm. but it may be under slightly different circumstances. But they, I guess for the younger children, they need reassurance that it's not the end of the world, that, the, that things are not going to um, change into something awful and different, um, but they will still be able to you know, be with both parents. Mm. Ian, how do you help a client who at the time of the relationship breakdown is feeling completely out of control to give them assist, immediate assistance so they don't involve the children. What sort of practical assistance would you give a client in therapy to help them set aside their needs from those of the kids? Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's that's quite difficult. I've spoken to, to, to parents sometimes they come and see me because they've just the, received the news that their, their mm. marriage is over and, that's a, and that totally, for some people, comes as a complete shock. shock. And so trying yeah. to work out what to do. I think something that helps is to get, what I try and do is provide them with some information about things that may happen from now on mm-hmm. and also f- to encourage them to get some advice and for them to develop some kind of understanding about what might happen. I guess I think for some parents that experience is like, like trying to, cross a, a, a room that's got a whole lot of furniture and suddenly the lights have gone out or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like they don't, they don't know where the, the, the obstacles and the dangers mm-hmm. are and everything. But if you try and shed some kind of light there and they can at least understand, well, these are the things that might happen, these are the things to, to watch out for. And for them to feel like they have some level of control or some, so maybe there are some little things that they might be able to have some control over in a situation where they feel that things are very much out of control. And... Also, just general mental health things as well in in terms of you know when they're dealing with a big shock like that mm-hmm. to make sure that they moderate use of alcohol, be careful not to drink too much, make sure that they're actually still eating regular exercise mm-hmm. diet and things like that that helps those kinds of things are helpful for your your general mental health in any situation, but particularly when you're facing a very stressful situation like the end of a relationship and when would you indicate to a person that they would benefit from going to their general practitioner to get a referral to a psychologist. A lot of people who see Ben and I, when we say, look, we think you'd get some help and benefit, are resistant because of the old stigma that we have. Mm. So can you give an overview as to what the Medicare system now does in terms of 
getting access to psychologists and why it may be a strength, not a weakness. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll give you an overview of yeah. the Medicare system. <laughs> How much time? Which, yeah, which is currently under review as well. Mm. But look, at the moment, under what's called the Medicare, or sorry, the Better Access Scheme of Medicare, uh, Australian, Australians are entitled to 10 rebatable uh, sessions with a psychologist per calendar year. In order to get that that re that rebate, you need to get a mental health care plan. So the first thing is that you would need to go and see your general practitioner, advise them that you want to come in and get a have an interview interview for a mental health care plan because that's actually takes a little bit longer than a standard consultation. Uh, and then in that, the um, the GP will uh, create a referral to a psychologist. It doesn't have to be a specific psychologist, but generally GPs will have. Uh, and um, they will know which which, which local psychologist would probably best suit the situation. Mm-hmm. It's important, though, that the GP is able to put the specific mental health diagnosis um, that they want the person to be treated for. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you can't if it's prior to separation mm-hmm. or something, the GP can't actually write a referral, say, for marriage counselling. Marriage counselling is not actually a mental health yes. um, issue that's <laughs> yeah. covered by uh, Medicare. Yeah. But what often happens is, particularly when the relationship ends, someone will just be finding it very difficult to, to adjust to the, the new um, situation. And so there's actually a diagnosis called adjustment disorder, which is very often the diagnosis that people come with yeah. on, on a mental health care plan. Mm-hmm. So as I say, once you've got your mental health care plan, you can then um, call a psychologist and, and make a, a booking. And it doesn't, if it, it doesn't have to be specifically the psychologist that the doctor recommended. You can go to any, any registered psychologist or a psychologist registered with Medicare, which is most people in private practice. And that's that's the process. Um, yeah. Depending on the psychologist, it could be a gap between you know, what the uh, the psychologist charges and what Medicare will cover. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, that gap could be you know, anything up to maybe a hundred dollars, depending on the psychologist. Uh, what the psychologist charges and, and mm-hmm. the particular part of um, uh, Australia might be living in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So di- in different areas, it, it costs differently. Some psychologists will, will bulk bill um, people that may be on a healthcare card or uh, may have limited income. So if it's bulk billed, there's no gap. But that, they're the, the, the sort of stages practical. to go through in terms of the practical stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's it's a good idea to um, to get some support because particularly, I guess, the, the, the great benefit of seeing a psychologist is that you can go and you can totally unload and just blurt out all the stuff and there's no expectation the psychologist has to be there for you. So some people, you know, they, they will often lean on their friends and everything, but they may be reluctant mm. to tell yeah. friends too much because there is that expectation yes. of friendship that yeah. it's a two-way thing. You don't have to worry about it with psychologists because yeah. that's what they're there for. So mm. you can just tell, you know, just you don't have to, you know, take a particular interest in them psychologists as they're interested in you and, and how you're coping, coping. with things yeah. so you know the best psychologist will give you 50 minutes of quite um, focused attention and um, hopefully mm. empathetic listening and so forth which is is again generally beneficial for, for everyone mm-hmm. i guess the the thing that sometimes people may be concerned about in terms of um uh, seeing a psychologist who, and if they're involved in family court litigation, mm-hmm. is the possibility that the psychologist's notes could be subpoenaed. Yeah, yes. And uh, both, uh, I think the psychologists are aware of that. I guess um, uh, you would, if you're going to engage a psychologist, you should be aware that that's a possibility as mm-hmm. well. So that's the nature of... But I think one of the things that we would say is that if you're assessing a family 
and somebody did get assistance for that adjustment mm. uh, problem, it's likely to be seen as a benefit because they're, they're aware they need help mm, to, right. to minimise the yeah, damage yeah. to the kids. Yeah, you would certainly hope that's the yeah, case. Yeah. 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 And just taking up on that, Ian, we're talking about adjustments, of course, in, in the parents, but, of course, there's adjustment of the children as well, mm, mm. and um, the children have to grieve um, the mm. loss you know, of you know, live with parent or mm. perhaps you know, the breakup of their family. And some children take longer than others. What, what can parents be on the lookout for, which might indicate that their children are perhaps um, adjusting or taking longer than expected or outside the normal range? Yeah. Okay, I guess the thing that you'd want to be watching out for is like um, symptoms of, of depression or some, mm-hmm. some similar mood disorder. And I guess it would be normal in a situation like this for the children to be upset, to feel despondent, et cetera, et cetera. I guess the point at which you would say that's crossed from being a normal kind of reaction to something which is possibly that needs some kind of clinical attention mm-hmm. is, is the, the, the idea or the construct of, of um, impairment of function. And, and what I mean by that is that you are, uh, the child is um, they're, they're unable to perform functions in some important area of their life. So, for example... If they are just, they're not getting out of bed because they're just so sad or they're, mm. you know, they're not able to go to school or they're, they're crying a lot and so they're unable to, to do whatever it is well, they used to do. Extracurricular activities. That's right. Mm. Or if they lose interest in things that they previously used to really love. Mm-hmm. You know? So if they're, they're really keen swimmers and suddenly they're just not interested in that anymore, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. These are kind of areas where you might say, okay, there could be some sort of um, impairment of function in, in important areas of um, either socialising or academic life or, mm-hmm. or or even if they're working or something like that. So that's, a, the, if, that's the point at which you would have to say, okay, maybe this is just more than just the normal kind of grief and feeling sad and everything, maybe this is actually something that requires um, some professional input. Yep. And again, as you were saying before, parents shouldn't be concerned because the, the general practitioner that has been helping look after the kids will be that sounding board to look at if if you're overreacting or no, in this one, mm. you might need to go and see. That's right. Um, have the, the little one might need some backup. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So your general practitioner is the first point of call. And if you're taking a child to a general practitioner, chances are that the, the GP does have a lot of experience in, in speaking to children. Mm-hmm. And so they would have some idea about what's a, you know, what, what would be normal right. and what might require some extra um, investigation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Ian, when you've got your family consultant hat on, mm-hmm. I know at the end of your reports um, you're forced to make recommendations mm-hmm. um, to the court and probably more importantly to the parties. Of course, in the Family Law Act, there's no prescribed parenting arrangement for children. There's no default plan or <laughs> plan B 50, or something 50. like that. <laughs> or 50-50 yeah, mm-hmm. What do you think are the best arrangements that can work for children or what do you find is the most common living arrangements um, that work well for children? I know it's a hard question, (laughs) Um, but there it is. Yeah, well, in terms of what works well, unfortunately I'd have to say you guys are probably better judges of that than I am because I... Mm -hmm. I have an unusual situation in that I will often make the recommendations, but I actually don't tend to see what happens after that. So I don't see the follow-up very often. I just see it occasionally, but not very often. But in general, what I would say, and it depends again on the developmental stage of the child. Mm -hmm. So obviously 
what's good for a, a four or five year old is different from say a 11 or 12 year old. But in general, I would say um, something that is consistent and easily understood. So for example, if it's a regular thing, like if it's every second weekend with one party from Friday to Sunday and, and one night during the off week or something like that, mm-hmm. that's, that's, quite, that's quite standard, it's reasonably easy to understand. And, it, and therefore it's easy to implement and it also provides some level of security and consistency for the children because when everything else is, is, or when they've had something very unusual happen in, in their life with the separation of parents, it's good for them to at least feel like something is, is kind of routine. predictable and routine. Mm, That's yeah. right. The, I mean, the, the good thing about that as well is that the, the parents don't necessarily have to see each other all that often. Mm-hmm. So if you're having if you're having high conflict with the mm-hmm. other party, then the sort of plan you probably want is one again that's easy to keep track of, easily understood. So there's not there's not conflict around that. But also you may not necessarily have to have that much to do with the other party if you really don't want to see the other party yeah. or if you're, you're concerned about seeing them at changeover. So they're the kinds of things I think that are important in terms of predictability, routine, easily understood. So there's not, so it's it's unlikely that conflict will be generated by that, or there'll be some ambiguity about what's, you know, whether, whether it's my week or your week. Yeah, or, and there's yeah. crazy um, things you see where people have got, you know, in week one three days and one that's day right, week exactly. two yeah, six yeah. days. Of, the adults can't understand right. it. How the hell would primary school age children exactly? Yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. parents have to really remember when discussing or negotiating or considering parenting arrangements for the children that it is about the children. Mm. Um, it's not about them. And we see all the time, don't we, the people that come into our office and sometimes we see it enshrined in court orders as well, parenting arrangements that are completely age-inappropriate um, for children mm. and things, you know, changeovers on Christmas Day and Father's Day and stuff like that in high-conflict cases when really it is just about the parents. Mm. You know? yeah. Parents, yeah. you know, kids love having two Christmases um, <laughs> or, you know, whatever, an extra birthday party yeah. or something like that. A lot of the time the focus is actually on the parents. Yeah. And, Ian, I know you have a, a specialty with teenagers and is there something that parents can be on the lookout for specifically in relation to teenagers and how they can help them through the separation? I know from Heather and I's point of view, the uh, children's views, a view of a teenager is given a, a lot more weight mm. um, and sometimes given the only weight and the only circumstance <laughs> um, in some circumstance, in some matters. So what, what things can the parents look out for to make sure that arrangements are appropriate for teenagers and that in consideration of the teenagers' views? Mm, okay. It's a difficult question um, for me to, to, to think of an answer off the top of my head. I mean, I guess the important thing is for... I guess you have to balance a few different considerations. Uh, one is the level of attachment that they have with, with each parent. So, you know... Uh, Clearly, if if court orders say that a, a teen has to spend time with a parent that they don't particularly like or feel very much attachment to, mm. that's that, that won't work, mm. uh, and the, mm. the, the the teen will vote with their feet. They mm-hmm. won't. They just won't do it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, sometimes you may have people return to court and or you know try and bring the other party and try and enforce it and so forth, and, and really that does nothing to endear them to the, the, mm, the, the teenager either. No. Mm. So, um, you know, it's important to be realistic, I guess, when, at the first point when you're trying to work out what sort of arrangements you're going to have is, to, is for each parent to think, well, I guess uh, it would be foolish for a parent, I think, to try and enforce uh, a, a teen spending time with them when, they, when the teen is clearly not 
um, very keen on doing it because, as I said, they'll create a rod for their own back. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, <clears throat> if we're talking about like sub teams, I'd like, say between about 10 and 12 or something mm-hmm. like that, that's that, in my experience, is a more difficult area because sometimes you may have the, the child, um, you know, for whatever reason, may not want to spend time with the other parent, but mm-hmm. it is actually important for for them to have a relationship with the other parent. And so you would hope that in that instance that, you know, that they, they would be encouraged by the other party to actually spend time with the other parent and mm-hmm. say, you know, despite the fact that you may not be feeling very well disposed towards that parent mm, at the moment, for you. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, they are going to be your, <clears throat> your father or your mother for the rest of your life yeah. and you will have a relationship with them and it's actually important for you to, to give them a go and actually spend time with them. Yeah. So I think it's important for parents to... You know, to try and um, promote the, the the child's relationship with the other parent. And I think in your field we've seen some research in the last few years, for example, that was at odds with what we'd thought, which was adolescent girls need to spend a lot of time with their father. Um, and, you know, the, the research that we're getting updates from all the time can often change the way we... Think, but yeah. we know that yeah that girls in high school who don't have strong attachments with their father are at very high risk of, of later outcomes that are not so good yeah yeah. Well, yeah and again I guess it comes down to that that kind of idea of attachment trying to work out what just how closely do they feel to the other to, to yeah. the father for example mm. I mean they're, 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 you know, quite legitimately there could be a lot of teenage girls that want to have very little to do with their yeah. their fathers and possibly for quite good reasons yeah. but you know if that's not the case then certainly um, the relationship with fathers I mean you, you shouldn't you shouldn't basically uh, take the approach of oh well it's not important for the, the 13 year old girl to see her dad because mm. it's a dad you know she yeah, doesn't yeah. You know, she only needs a mum yeah only needs a mum <laughs> yeah so it's, and I guess that's that is the the benefit of like family reports and yeah. so forth where you can have someone that actually can look at the individual case and try and weigh up the different factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the other thing that is really important is the um, understanding as they move through high school how important the peer group and flexibility is. Mm-hmm. And often what Ben and I see is if parents separate when their children are little, when it gets to the adolescents starting to have a say, they often think it's the other parent because they've been away in terms of that really close contact. Mm -hmm. So that need for flexibility and peer groups Mm. in adolescence, Mm. I'm imagining, is something else you need to factor in. Yeah, and and that does add an extra layer of complexity to the whole situation as well because adolescence is a time when the peer group actually becomes more important necessarily Mm, than the parents, Mm. particularly in terms of setting... um, norms or standards or whatever that the adolescent might want to try and meet or aspire to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll often find that the adolescent may not want to spend time with the other parent, you know, but it's not necessarily, I mean, that's a feature of adolescence. They don't yeah. necessarily want to spend a lot of time <laughs> no. with their parents. It's more important to be to be out with their peers. So, yeah, yeah, so I guess a challenge particularly for the, the parent that doesn't have spend most of the time with their adolescent yeah is to um, try and still promote the relationship with the, the non-living... I'm trying very yeah. hard to avoid the word custody, but, yeah. you know, uh, the, the, the parent that but doesn't have full-time care. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah. because the adolescent, there could be just some normal resistance to, yeah. to doing that just because they're adolescents. And, Ian, divorce is almost always an extremely stressful time for parents. Is it okay for parents to let kids see when they're angry or upset? Um. <clears throat> 
I think to some extent. I mean, it depends. Sorry, we're we talking uh, uh, which which age group as well. <laughs> yes. works, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think the best thing to avoid is that is to avoid the if you if they're angry or upset to for the child to see you venting about the the, the myriad shortcomings of the other party yes, and yeah. you know and how they're a terrible person, etc., etc., etc. That does no one any good. Mm-hmm. But that the observation of children watching how their parents adjust to the trauma of and that life event can be beneficial mm-hmm. um, because the kids can see well you can survive. Mum, that's dad true. Was sad, but now they're happy. Well, that's um, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so mm-hmm. I guess yeah, um, as long as there is that 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 balance. I think the biggest vulnerability that adolescents have is their their life experience is relatively short and they don't understand necessarily that things are crap now but they will actually get better in the future and that's mm-hmm. that's something that I think is really, really important and mm-hmm. needs mm-hmm. to be reinforced with adoles- adolescents quite a lot and I try and do that in my clinical practice, mm-hmm. not just in, in family no, um, but dispute yeah. cases but when, when, children are, when adolescents are feeling like things are pretty bad in their mm-hmm. life and everything, to actually give mm-hmm. them some hope that what you're feeling now is very often normal and mm-hmm. normalise it but the reality is that things will actually get, get better, better. Mm-hmm. because adolescents that don't mm-hmm. understand that, that's, uh, you know, if they develop some sort of hopelessness or real despair about the future, that's a risk really? factor for serious so, um, yeah, yeah, suicide, issues, yeah, yeah, yeah. self-harm, so, a number of other yeah. really bad outcomes. Yeah. I have mm. one more question sure. for you, Ian. And I'm going to ask you to put your family consultant hat back on. Sure. And a lot of families that go through the family law courts um, are, uh, endure or are subject to or go through um, the it. family yeah. report process, uh-huh. okay? And, of course, um, I'm sure each family report writer is different. Heather and I, we tell people on a daily basis um, what's in a family report process, but of course we've never done one mm-hmm. and you do them all the time. So mm-hmm. I thought the last question sure. um, would be great just to ask you, in your rooms at least, how does the family report process work? Okay, because I can only talk about my own because I don't know mm-hmm. about necessarily how other people do it, except I will say that it's a fairly standard kind of format. So the, the report that you produce, there's expectations about what the headings are and what's contained under each heading. So you yeah. would hope... And guys would probably know better yeah. than me as well. You would hope the most family reports follow a sim- yeah, similar kind of format. But, I mean, first of all, the format that I follow is that I, I contact the parties prior to the interviews, let them know when they'll be on. The person that's filed the application for, for the, 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 the litigation, um, I generally see first. So generally I see mm-hmm. the, the applicant first and then I see uh, the other party after that. It involves uh, an interview with, um, with each applicant to get an understanding about um, what they see as a situation, what their proposal is, how they would like to see uh, things or what they think is the best outcome for the children. If the, the person has a new partner, then I would like to see them as well. And then also really importantly to meet with the children. So if the children are more than, so if the children are at school, I would usually interview uh, the child as well and get a bit mm-hmm. of a sense of um, how they are traveling, what they um, feel about things to as much as possible get an idea of what, what they would like to see as an outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously if there are teenagers and so forth, ask them sort of um, other questions as well, but to try and get a bit of a sense of, of what they would think would work. Yeah, what what this what kind of things I think would be important for the judge to know because mm-hmm. the judge will be making the decision and the decision is a decision which is hope is 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 aimed to um, uh, be in the best interest of the child so mm. all the children so 
I guess the family report is an opportunity for the child's voice to be heard in proceedings. And so that's, uh, I guess, the, the aim that I have. So it does involve about, a, for, for me, it would take about a day interviewing the various parties. Each party I'd probably interview for a couple of hours and then I'd observe them with the children as well. And that's um, a play session normally. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although I, I tend to kind of leave it up to the, the families as well. Yeah. I try and be very non-directive and I basically sit there and, and see whether or not the parents like to take initiative and to, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. do some play or if they brought something with them or all that kind of stuff. It mm-hmm. gives me a bit of an idea about what the dynamics of the relationship are. And when do you inspect the subpoena material? Um, That's what I want to know. Are you the type of family consultant that gets all this information beforehand and then goes in and sees a party? Or do you read very little and have an organic experience? Look, subpoena material, um, it's it's tricky because, say, in Coffs Harbour, generally if you want to read the subpoena material, you've either got to go to Newcastle or Lismore to view it or you've got to be organised enough to ask for the registry to send it down to the courthouse at Coffs Harbour. So certain logistics involved. And so that tends to determine when I read the subpoena material. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in, in, uh, I, was, I was looking at subpoena material this morning uh, in, the, in the courthouse of Coffs Harbour, but that mm-hmm. was for an interview that I did recently. So, in fact, I did the interview first and then read and the And then subpoena. you read it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly you read the affidavits and the applications and notices of risk and, um, and so forth beforehand, so you have a bit of an idea of, of what the, the issues the dispute, are. Yeah. yeah, and I guess if it was if the subpoena material was, was handy, I'd probably probably like to read it beforehand because it helps you when very often you'll get divergent um, accounts yeah. of the same event and yeah. so it's it's good to actually have read the stuff beforehand so if someone tells you something which you know is really not quite what the uh, you know the other Police documents yeah, yeah, the, yeah and things like the school reports exactly, give that yeah. objective view of how the kids traveling that's yeah. right yeah so it's, it's good to know beforehand mm-hmm. thank you so much Ian for helping us tackle this very big and complex issue And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this first podcast. We will be producing a new podcast every month and it will be available on our website or wherever you usually get your podcasts on the first Friday of each month. Next month, we are going to talk about how to get a fair deal in your property settlement. You won't want to miss that. So we hope you will join us again in June. If you have any questions you would like to see answered on this show, you can contact us via Facebook Messenger or by emailing familymatters at bryantmckinnon.com.au. The information provided on this podcast is general in nature and not a substitute for personal legal advice. We recommend you consult an accredited family law specialist.